it is an absolute honor to be here and bring God's word to you. Um, for the handful that in the sanctuary that may not know who I am, my name is Sanjeev. I, I get to be a doctor by day at Kaiser over in Baldwin Park uh, in family medicine, and I get this honor uh, every few months to bring God's word to you. Um, last week, um, we had um, our preacher, my brother, uh, who shared with us a little bit about a concept of how faith can actually bend time and uh, the freedom that comes with, with measure from us not having to measure ourselves in every season against societal expectations, right? Um, the sermon kind of brought comfort and encouragement uh, for those of us who feel like we haven't really amounted to everything we had hoped for in any given particular season of our life. Um, and last week, we were reminded of a deep hope that since Jesus actually existed before the creation of time, he is the only one that's uniquely positioned um, to redeem in a very to redeem time itself uh, with regard to our seasons in sort of this divinely mysterious uh, and wonderful way. Now, faith is not left standing alone in our seasons of waiting. I want you all to know that this morning. This morning, we are going to do a deep dive into another incredible, precious gift um, that God gives us in our seasons of waiting. And it has to do with a very precious gift that he actually affords to us, that he gives us access to as sons and daughters of the Most High. And it is the gift of godly validation. Okay. Having had many conversations with you in this sanctuary over the last months and years, I, um, I know that we are chock full of stories and testimonies about uh, what it's been like to carry sort of the burden of unfulfilled desires or things that have not come to fruition in our respective seasons. Many of you, um, and I can attest to this, having watched your lives, you have diligently, you have diligently labored in your seasons, faithfully pouring in blood, sweat, tears, uh, literally into developing a specific craft, um, really polishing up a skill or a trade. Um, and, and yet, despite your faithfulness in that season, um, there are stories of you being passed up for that job or for that promotion. You have put in the time to work on yourself and iron out your rough edges and be the most captivating uh, version of yourself um, over the last few years, and still that partner that you have longed for hasn't come up to the door yet. You know, you've, you've really worked hard on that book, and you've completed it, and you feel like it's complete and, and, and ready to share with the world, but no publishers have come knocking on the door. You put together that CD, that incredible compilation 
of music that you have worked on for so many years, and yet no recording studio has come knocking on your door. Maybe you've, you've taken care of your body and done all the right things, and you're trying to get pregnant, but you can't. Maybe you're a parent who's invested faithfully for 18 years into the lives of their children, and, and yet your children don't subscribe to your way of thinking. Maybe you have been trying for 40 years to, to please your father or your mother, and you realize after 40 years that they still make you feel like you don't measure up, right? As I scan the room and I see the nods of silent amens, um, I can tell that your spirit resonates. And yet, you live in this space where you may have so faithfully toiled in developing this particular project or or pouring all your efforts and energy um, faithfully, listening to the Lord's voice, um, taking heed of scriptural principles, and you have really tried your best to walk faithfully in this season, and yet um, the desire has not come to fruition, the promises has not come to pass. And the worst thing about it is you kind of look around. You look at, around at the world around you and you see other people with evil schemes who are always taking shortcuts here and there, who are always pursuing less, um, less than noble means, who are uh, not exercising integrity, um, who are looking for every corner that they can cut. And you are seeing them um, have some measure of success while all your efforts seem to get stuck in stagnant waters. You believe, you actually believe what the preacher shared with last week, that God can actually bend time and redeem what the locusts have eaten away and and bring into your season um, his promises in a different way. You believe that. You believe that up here. You may even believe that down in here, on a soul level. But the validation from the world has yet to come. And you run the risk that you may actually not get this validation at any point in your living, breathing life. Well, if you are in this space, and I can tell um, by the nods in this room that, that many of you are, despite what season you're in, um, I have good news for you. I have good news for you this morning. I want to tell each and every one of you, God actually has a heart to validate you. All right? This might seem like a very strange concept, but God's heart is actually to validate you. He longs to give you this heavenly gift of divine validation. And this divine validation is such a dynamic thing. So much so that, that once you grapple with it, once, once you own it, once you yield to it, once you accept it, once you embrace it, the validation then leads to him giving you his vision, which then leads to him giving you his victory. 
Let's pray. Lord, as we dive into your word this morning, um, we ask, Lord, that, that your truth will penetrate our hearts in transformative ways. Lord, I come to you as your servant on this pulpit, not to simply inspire, not to share feel-good stories, um, not to put clever words together, Lord, but to be an instrument of, of your life transformation, transforming work, Lord. Your word, Father, is living and breathing. And so breathe into us, Lord. Breathe into me all that you would want imparted. I pray for those spaces, Lord, that people are in right now this morning where there have been seasons of, of waiting and toiling and, and faithfully working and wondering, has all of this been in vain? Lord, we ask that you would meet each and every one of, one of your saints this morning in that space, in only the way you can. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... Now that I've set the stage a little bit, I want to share with you guys a personal story that's very much tied in with the, the sermon message this morning. Um, you see, the year is 2021, and about four years ago, 2017, um, my wife and I had been married for about three years. Um, none of our three beautiful children had arrived yet. Uh, so life was a lot less noisy. Uh, there was peace and calmness at our home. We could actually take 10-minute showers. We could actually get through meals. Uh, we could actually have the ability to, to carry on a conversation at home um, without multiple interruptions. Um, and so the year was 2017. I had been a practicing physician physician at Kaiser Permanente for about a little over 10 years. And I had been faithfully kind of building up my practice, getting to know my two, 3,000 patients, uh, doing some leadership stuff, doing some teaching. Uh, felt like I had a very rich career. And, um, and this incredible opportunity came up. Um, you may or not, may not know this, but Kaiser is actually the biggest HMO or actually the first HMO in the history of the world. They kind of set the template for what health maintenance organizations should look like. And now they cater to about 4.5 million people here in the Southern California area. And so, um, and they have like 14 big medical centers throughout Southern California. And so something like one in 23, 25, per, actually 23 to 25% of the Southern California population has Kaiser Permanente as their health insurance. And in Northern California, it's like 40%. So it's got a huge uh, part of the California healthcare market. And so I was kind of siloed and working at the Baldwin Park facility about 25 minutes over here. And, um, and, and you know, being faithful to, to my territory in my area and uh, the regional headquarters, the mothership, as we call it, um, is actually located right here in Pasadena, right next to the Walnut Library. And so whenever positions get posted uh, from our headquarters, 
it's a very big deal because whoever gets those positions actually can influence millions of people. And if it's a position that involves um, working with physicians, uh, the directives that come from there actually can affect, at that time, the 7,000 physicians working in the Southern California area. And so a position got posted, and it was titled uh, Medical Director for Physician Leadership Development. And I thought to myself, man, this sounds so exciting. Like, this is the thing I'm really passionate about. Um, in a given day, like, if you ask me what is the thing that gives me such great joy here on earth, it is when I see other people rising up and taking their place in the things that they're meant to be doing, right? And so as I looked around, like, I'm always about shouting out and kind of pushing and shoving the doctors around me to say, look, you are so talented in this. Start a niche clinic. You are so gifted in this. Go out there and inspire young children in the community to consider healthcare fields. You are so treasured. You have insight in this area. Please develop that and let that be a blessing to our organization. I love teaching. Um, I, I'm passionate about this stuff. I've had students come in and out of my office and, and, and to see them take ownership, to see them go out to the ends of the earth and, and start, uh, an alabaster mobile clinic or do world changing things. Like there's nothing for me as a seasoned physician that brings me greater joy than to see my colleagues and the people I have influence over rise up, rise up in significant place, ways and take their, their places. And so when this, this position opened up, I was excited beyond belief because I really felt that God was calling me to it. And so they had this robust, robust um, interview process. We had to answer like 11 two-page questions, and then we had to go through multiple rounds of interviews, and we had like 10 or 11 panels of judges who would just grill us about our vision for how would you transform leadership? How would you become an inclusive leader and encourage all 7,000 docs to, to take up their ranks and, and be a blessing and give back to the organization. And so I poured in hours developing uh, my answers and getting prepped for this position and, um, and made it through multiple rounds. And there were lots of people who, who were much more seasoned than I was, but at the 10-year mark, I was competing with doctors who had been there for 10 and 25 years, for 25 years, almost 30 years. And so I wasn't really sure what my chances were. And to my surprise, I got to the semifinal round. And, um, and, and so the judges then put forth four people to our CEO at that time out of the pool that had applied. And some of the judges ca called me over after the semifinal round, and they, they, they whispered to me, hey, I, I'm not sure if we're supposed to tell you this, but just to let you know, we ranked you number one. And you are number one on the list of four people we are sending up to the CEO. And there's actually a pretty big gap between what number one and number two, but we're sending you forward. And so I was feeling pretty good about this. I was like, Lord. Everything I have been like so faithfully doing over the last 10 years, 
it feels like this promotion is, is a righteous one. I feel like I've earned it. I feel like you've positioned me. I feel like heaven and earth is moving and it's aligning and this is going to happen. And the judges are telling me I'm ranked number one. Let's go. And so I go to the interview. I sit in the C-suite. Um, it's always an intimidating thing when you're sitting in the C-suite of a, of, a, of a Fortune 500 company with the CEO. And in the walls are like portrait-sized pictures of these people that, that are about 20, 30 feet tall. Um, and so you, I am sitting in my humble self and, uh, and just shocked beyond belief that I've made it this far. And uh, the interviews happen, and they go pretty well. And, um, and so I'm feeling pretty good about my chances. A few weeks go by, and my family is excited. Some of my friends are excited. They know about this. And I get a call one night from the CEO. And he says words that I will never forget to this day. He says, Sanjeev, um, you're a great candidate for this position, um, but I'm going to go with the number two option. And so I was really shocked by this, and I asked for sort of a follow-up conversation with him, and then I followed up with him, and I asked him, um, you know, could you tell me a little bit more about what, what was it? Where did I fall short? And, you know, he gave me some politically correct answers and then said, um, hey, and he knew me to be a man of faith. And he said, don't put a period where God's put a comma. Don't put a period where God's put a comma. Now, I had heard that expression before, but when it's spoken to you, um, it hit me in that moment. And, um, and so I shared that with Pastor Ko, and, and, um, and, and, you know, he was very consoling, and, and we, we couldn't, as I prayed with, with people here at church, um, I couldn't make sense of it all. I, I felt a little bit like I had been robbed. And so, um, but I let it go. I knew that the story was not going to end, that there was more to this. Um, and when your senior pastor prays with you and breeds that into you, that the story is not over, you hold on to that. Um, and it resonated with my spirit as well. Fast forward four years. And we come to present time, 2021. Now, because I didn't get that position, what I did was I went back to the drawing board. And I said, I am going to devote the next four years to building the most robust, most creative, most innovative leadership development program at Kaiser Permanente Baldwin Park. And so I went to work behind the scenes and, and, I would literally have coffee with doctors. I would, I would meet with them. I would find out their ideas. I would encourage, I would talk to chiefs of departments and say, hey, let's push this doctor into this position. Let's push that doctor into that position. Let's position them so that their giftings can just flow and come out. And the joy that I would see every time um, that I would notice every time somebody fell into, were properly positioned, 
it was just immense. Like, I, I, I just felt like the, the pride that a father feels when, when their child kind of steps it up and nails it. And so I, I had put together all these creative different programs. And so fast forward four years, and the person that got the position kind of made a lateral move. And the position opens up again. And so a few weeks ago, when the position opened up again, the mothership sends out an email to everybody. Hey, this position is open. All of you apply who are interested. And so 30 people throw in their names this time. And um, and I was a little reluctant because now I am a man with three little ones tugging at me all the time, wanting their diapers changed or their mouths fed. Uh, or their runny noses blown at, blown at home. And so yeah, I'm in a very different season in my life. And, um, and so my wife and I talked about it and we prayed about it. And just the enormous amount of people um, who reached out that encouraged me to go for it, um, it, it was just sort of this added confirmation that, yep, I've got to do it. Despite the impracticalities of the season, I got to go for it because this is the thing that within our organization, I feel the most called to more so than anything else. And so the process starts again. 30 becomes 15, 15 becomes 12. And because of the craziness of the COVID season, a lot of things are kind of done in a half-hearted way and no more multiple panel interviews. It's just one little 25-minute um session, a video interview, and not 11 exhaustive questions. This time it's two two questions, and everything is kind of fast-forwarded. And, and as I was going through the process, I was thinking, all right, I came in number two last time. Surely um, my chances must be better given everything I have worked on the last four years, right? And there's only one one spot to go up from number two, right? And so here we go. And uh, this is last, so we go through the semifinal round. They've narrowed it down to 12. And a month goes by, and I don't hear anything. They tell us, we're going to announce and let you know who got this position by the end of September. And now we're getting into the second week of October, and I haven't heard anything. And I'm starting to get a little nervous about this because, you know, Kaiser's never late on things like that. When they say they're going to make an announcement, they'll make an announcement. Um, and so finally, a couple of Fridays ago, I sent an email inquiring, hey, guys, can you let us know where we are in the process? And so last Sunday, this is real time. I'm sharing this with you real time, hot off the press. Um, we finished the Sunday service. I look at my phone, I get a missed call from the, the physician who's in charge of shepherding this process. And we, we text each other and we're like, all right, we'll talk at five. And so for four hours after uh, grabbing lunch last Sunday, um, you know, my wife and I are kind of going through different possibilities. Uh, you know, surely she's going to call you with good news. They call you on a Sunday if it's good news. If it's bad news, they call you Monday through Friday. But this must be good news because they're calling you on a Sunday, right? And um, 
And I'm praying, and it's about 5.15. She still hasn't called yet. I get into my daughter's room, and I kneel before the Lord, and and I'm like, Lord, I, I mean, this could literally change the trajectory of my life for the next few years. Um, and so I'm excited. I'm thrilled. I'm a little nervous. Um, I don't know why there hasn't been, there's been silence for a month. Um, I had some suspicions that maybe some politics was starting to creep in, but you know what, Lord, I'm, I'm giving this to you. And, and I'm like, Lord, would you give me a word right now in real time to prepare me for the phone call? Cause I, I just, I need to know you are that intimately tied in with this whole journey. And so I prayed and at 5.14 p.m., the Lord drops Psalm 37, 5 through 7. Okay? Now, this is one of the few, few scriptures I have memorized and that I know without having to open up scripture and to see what it reads. And it's, it's a verse that, that many of you are familiar with, and, and it, it reads this. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And then I read this part, and I remembered this part, and I opened up the Bible just to make sure this was there. It says, do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. So at 5.15 now, I'm wondering, Lord, why are you giving me this? Why are you giving me this word? Because it starts so promising that you are going to come through, right? That you are going to make the righteousness of my cause shine in the light of day. But you didn't stop with verse 6. You flashed in front of me. The impression you dropped in red in front of me included verse 7. And so now I have to deal with the reality of verse 7 as I wait for this call. When you invite God that intimately into real-time things, into minute-by-minute, second-by-second things that happen in your life, I'll tell you, he shows up, and he will show up in in God-sized ways. And so, do not fret, do not fret, do not fret, just kept circling around in my mind for like five minutes, and then I see the call, call come through. And uh, the physician tells me, um, hey, you have... You did really well with, with, with the interviews, and you ranked in the top third. So let's do the math. There's 12 people. Top third means you're in the top four. But for reasons that I can't fully explain to you, we're only going to send three candidates up to the CEO, and we've decided to leave you out. So my heart just dropped for a second. I sat silently, I thanked her, and then I said, give me a second here, because 
I need to ask you some questions. I'm like, why are we deviating from the historical precedence of not putting four people forward, right? Why is it that suddenly you guys have decided to just put three people forward? And the funny thing is the current CEO is somebody who's known to me really well because he came out of our Baldwin Park Medical Center area. And so I really thought um, last time the judges had ranked me one and the CEO went with the number two option. This time I was so positioned well with the CEO because he knew me uh, on a deep level from having worked together for 10, 12 years. And, and the judges decide they're going to send three out of four for no good explainable reason. And so I, I found myself last Sunday in this place of great tension, right? Do not fret is what the Lord is giving me. And here is my humanity saying, have I labored in vain, Lord? Have I labored in vain? The blood, sweat, tears for the last four years. Have I labored in vain? Right? I, I'm not a guy who, 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 who is looking for power. I'm not a guy who's looking to put myself and thrust myself in places of influence um, for, for the sake of my legacy. Like, I felt your hand on this whole process. I felt you leading me I, every step of the way. And here I come to the final stage and I get passed over a second time because of politics. Meritocracy loses and politics wins again. And I was in this place of great tension. And as I was praying for the sermon message um, this week, because I knew I was on deck for today. Um, my family graciously reminded me um, of the of prophet Isaiah. Actually, Rajiv texted me middle of the week saying, I am reminded of Isaiah 49. And the one phrase that kept going in my in my circle for the last few days leading up to Wednesday was, have I labored in vain? Have I labored in vain? Have I labored in vain? And, and when Isaiah 49 was mentioned, something in my spirit leapt. Because after all, at some point in biblical history, about 2,700 years ago, the prophet Isaiah echoed those same words. I have labored for no purpose, he said in Isaiah 49. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Wasted effort and energy. Why hasn't my faithfulness paid off? And so it became clear to me in the days that followed that the Lord really wanted me to deal with Isaiah and take this sacred text and bring it to y'all this morning. And so I think God has some very precious seeds for us. Um, and I would love to kind of just take the next few minutes to just give you a little background about Isaiah, right? We, we know him to be um, sort of a major prophet. His name actually means the Lord saves. He is considered to be one of the major prophets, not necessarily because he's more important than anybody else, but because of the length of the oracles and the collections that led to the 66 books 
in, in that formed the book of Isaiah. And he, along with Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, formed the major prophets of the Old Testament, these voluminous books in the Old Testament. And scholars will often refer to Isaiah as the prince of the prophets, right? Um, and when you read uh, Isaiah, you'll understand why. And chronologically, in the biblical canon, or actually how it's arranged in the Bible, uh, Isaiah comes first, and, and that's actually considered a place of honor among the major prophets. And his, can, he had contemporaries during his life, names that you will remember and recognize, Amos and Hosea and Micah. We know he was the son of this guy named Amos. We don't really know much about Amos, but Amos was his father. We know that Isaiah was married, and he actually called his wife the prophetess. Um, he had two sons, and, and Scripture tells us that him and his wife actually named their children together, um, and their names of the children actually prophesied about things that, that would come uh, with regard to the nation of Israel. And he appears um, to us in the Old Testament around the time of 740 B.C. And, um, and his time of ministry would really kind of span 40 years, from 740 B.C. to about 701 B.C., 40 years. There were four kings that his ministry uh, spanned over. You know, his story starts with the death of King Uzziah, and then it continues through uh, Kings Joham, uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, finally. And Jewish tradition believes that Isaiah finally died at the hands of King Manasseh, who had him sawed in half. But um, we won't dwell on that this morning. Um, scholars tell us that Isaiah came from a noble family, probably an aristocratic family. And he had really easy access to the kings. He could sort of walk in and out um, and interspace, uh, interface with these kings of the time. And, and he had access to sort of royalty. And, and despite his esteemed position, we know reading through Isaiah that he was a prophet that actually cared, spoke out heavily against the social injustice issues of his time. Treatment of the poor, widows, often the orphans. And geopolitically, you got to understand what's going on during Isaiah's time, because the weight of what he was dealing with was actually pretty severe. And I want you to think about this in the context of all your seasons right now that feel pretty severe. This was no small thing. Geopolitically, this is what's going on in 740 BC. You see, around 1000 BC, the nation of Israel around the time of King Solomon, they were enjoying the height of their, of their wealth and influence and prosperity, and they were a unified kingdom. But in the, two, in the 200 years that followed after King Solomon's death, there is civil turmoil that goes on in the nation of Israel, and there comes the northern kingdom of Israel, and the south, making, made up of the ten tribes, and the southern kingdom, uh, of the tribes of Benjamin and Judah, and they would collectively be called Judah, and the ten northern tribes would be called Israel. And so we're dealing with a, a point in church history of God's people where they are no longer on the mountaintop. They have come down from their height of influence and prosperity in 1000 BC 
down to a divided kingdom, the north and the south, and there's enmity and, and bad blood running between the two kingdoms for different reasons. And if that wasn't bad enough, um, they were feeling the heat of the rising Assyrian Empire from the northeast. That was the big empire of the time, and they were starting to expand and conquer their lands and encroaching um, upon uh, both Israel and Judah. And this is the time, this is the season that the prophet Isaiah comes into and where he becomes relevant and where scripture kind of opens up and talks about his story. And you know, Isaiah starts faithfully after King Uzziah's death. He starts faithfully um, calling out the nation of Judah and, and talking about the, the idol worship, talking about the lack of care for the oppressed, talking about her unhealthy reliance on foreign alliances instead of trusting God for their defense. He starts calling these things out um, and, uh, and, and, and starts warning the nation of Israel about the judgment that is to come. And he was doing this faithfully. Like, Scripture doesn't talk about ways that Isaiah screwed up royally um, in what God was imparting him to do. He was a prophet who kind of nailed it, who just faithfully kept doing all what God asked him to do. And he labored. He labored for years and years just executing the things that God asked him to do. And yet, despite all that season of faithfulness, right, where And this is weighty stuff because the fate of God's people hangs in balance. They are being oppressed. They're about to be taken over by either the Assyrians or, as Isaiah prophesied, that you won't fall to them. The northern kingdom may but or will, but you won't fall to them. You're going to fall to the Babylonian empire that's going to come right after them. And, and he watches these things happen. He watches in, in the year... Um, in 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 the year like 1726, I believe, when the, the northern capital of Samaria falls and the northern kingdom is taken captive by the Assyrians. And he tells the people, look what happened to the northern kingdom. And what's going to happen to us is that Babylon is going to come and we are going to fall to Babylon. And guys, get this right before God. So the, the entire fate, of God's people is resting on his rebuke that God is delivering through this prophet. And yet, despite all his years of faithfulness, he is not seeing breakthrough. He is not seeing the course of things change. Right? And for a prophet, that is like the most damning thing. He is, if you can't get your, if you can't be an instrument of God, and get God's people to do the things that God desperately wants his people to do, then you are a failure, right? And, 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 and I think Isaiah is very, very aware of that. And, and so despite this prolonged period of faithfulness, um, without breakthroughs happening, Judah, the southern kingdom, they remain defiant, and they remain in the midst of this oppression happening around them. And it's into this space of feeling like, my God, why are my people not listening? Why are your people not listening to me? Why is are, are all the words that I'm speaking, they're falling on deaf ears? 
Something's got to change, Lord. I feel like a complete failure after years of doing this. And so if you have your Bibles with you, if not, just look up there at the screen. Daniel will post it up. Um, he says this in Isaiah verse 49, verses 1 through 3. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Mm. You know, just like Isaiah, I think there are many of us here this morning who feel like you've, you've intimately known the hand of God upon your lives. And you have known that for a long time. Um, and you are able to acknowledge and treasure the things that God has actually been doing in your life from the time you came to faith or even acknowledging what he did to bring you to faith. You can trace that from your childhood to now. And, and you acknowledge that God has actually hid you in his quiver. He's actually been sharpening your sword and, and priming you and prepping you for something. But the reality is when you've taken that sword and you've swung the sword, it has not caused ripples to happen. Nothing much of significance has happened when you swung that sword. And so you are left asking the question, I've been trained, I've been hidden, I didn't come out in public too soon, I've been trusting you, Lord, you've been refining and, and, and giving me this sword, but I'm swinging the sword and nothing is happening. And it makes you wonder, has all of this been in vain? It can leave you frustrated. And Isaiah speaks the words that I alluded to earlier for in verse 4. But I said, so Isaiah acknowledges fully all what he knows about God's faithfulness to him in his formative days. But despite that, because of the lack of breakthroughs happening after seasons of faithfulness, he says, I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Lord, your people are still defiant. They are still going to succumb to the Babylonian Empire. They are still not repenting. I have faithfully been trying to do everything you asked of me. But when I'm swinging my sword... Um, Nothing is happening. Repentance is not coming. The hearts of the nation of Israel are not being moved. Now, if I was honest with you guys about where I was and what space I was in last Sunday, shortly or after 5 p.m., um, 
I think I said something like this, Lord, I've done everything you've asked of me. And I've been passed over a second time for this Kaiser position. Right? That was that was my honest reality. That was my honest attitude. That was my honest response. Thankfully for Isaiah and for us this morning. Um, verse 4 and the rest of the story, it doesn't stop there. There's more. And I want you guys to just to pay attention to this dynamic that's going to happen right now um, in the second part of verse 4 in Isaiah. He says this, Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with God. I'm going to read that again. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with God. Okay? Isaiah comes to peace with the truth that God ultimately, the reward that he imparts is all that matters. I want, if you pay no attention to anything else I tell you this morning, or anything else I've said prior to this point, I want you to, to, to grab hold of this one truth and etch it on the palm of your hands and on your heart. My reward is with my God. Church, could I have you all just say that one time on three? Say, my reward is with my God. One, two, three. Own that. Own that. The moment that one phrase sings deep within you and takes a hold of you, I'm going to submit to you this morning that that will unleash and set into motion a whole different dynamic of things that the Lord really wants to do with us. The moment you realize that He is your ultimate reward, Let's read on and see what happens. Because Isaiah, now bear this in mind. This is poetry written in, in all sorts of forms where this may have not happened over, this realization may have not happened over a minute or a second. This might have taken Isaiah a little while to get to this point. But he gets to this point where he says, you know what, Lord, at the end of the day, I'm just called to be faithful. And I've done that. My reward is with you. And I am good with that. Now see what happens in the second half. We look at verse 5. Verse 5, 6, and 7 opens up to us a paradigm of the way God operates the moment we recognize that we are his reward. And I want us to kind of walk through that this morning so we can grapple with each and every one of those three things. It's the three V's. And I'm going to start with validation. All right. Read with me, if you will, Isaiah, um, or just follow along, Isaiah 49, verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob 
uh, to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. All right, this is verse 5. What an amazing thing when God himself tells you that you've honored him. Think about that. God is telling Isaiah, you have honored me. And this is where real validation begins. Isaiah holds God's reward, being honored by God as his primary reward. The earthly outcomes, as important as they may be, are secondary. All right, he's basically at this point where he says that come what may, God will reward me. I don't need man's praise. I don't need their accolades. I don't need recognition. My job is to honor God. And the rest lies entirely in his sovereign hands. Entirely. It's on God to do the rest. It's on God to do the rest, and I'm okay with that. I'll tell you how this played itself out in my life at 5.15 p.m. last Sunday. So I get this disappointing phone call from the senior leadership at Kaiser, and I go into my master bathroom on the second floor of our house, and and I sit there uh, with the lights turned off, uh, for a while, for like 20 minutes, I think, so much so that it worried my wife, Jarena. She came up to check up on me, but I was in there. And after the phone call, I sat in that space, and um, and I was just prompted to keep saying this one phrase by the Holy Spirit, Lord, my reward is with you and you alone. Lord, my reward is with you and you alone. Lord, my reward is with you and you alone. And I kept saying it louder and louder every time I said that. My reward, Lord, is with you and you alone. My reward, Lord, is with you and you alone. Every time I spoke that word, that phrase into the atmosphere, I could see the reproach of the call from from Kaiser and that disappointment getting lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. And this happened within about two minutes after I had spoken this phrase over and over into the spiritual atmosphere. Um, And and the thing that, that was amazing about this space when God is at work is when you acknowledge and you know in your heart, mind, and soul that God is your reward, and you acknowledge that with every authentic hair in your body, God has the ability to spirit supernaturally start moving. And when he moves, you don't, you can't even, you are trying to keep up with him. You can't even conceive in your rational mind how this change is happening in you so quickly. I had so many, the the injustice of the situation was maddening to me, one minute. But within two minutes, I'm able to let that go because of the work of the Holy Spirit. 
right? That is the supernatural work of God. And I could, I could just, in the silence of that deafening bathroom with the lights turned off, I could hear the words of the Holy Spirit saying, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. The words God speaks to Jesus and from Mark, right? And I can hear that. I can hear the pleasure of God in that room. I don't know if you guys have, have felt that experience consistently in your life, but to be in a place where you feel the pleasure of God soaking over you, see, this is not a, an idea for eternal life where you run the race well and there's this one time in the this, in this space of time where the Lord is going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. This is not, that's not the only time that the Lord is going to show his pleasure on you. That pleasure of God is meant to actually fall on you here in, in, on this earth, day in and day out, week in and week out, season, every season of your life. And I think people miss out on this, that, that God longs to pour his pleasure over you, to validate you and say, I am pleased with you. You have run this course. This You weren't perfect, but you have run it well. And I am pleased with you. I think most of us get distracted when we just start comparing ourselves to all the reasons why this looks like a failure in the, in the lens of the world. But we don't stop to realize that in that space, the living God can actually tell you, look, you did exactly what I asked of you, and I am so well pleased. My pleasure is upon you. Right? Eric Lydell, the runner from Chariots of Fire, says, When I run, I feel the pleasure of God. When I run, when I am doing my... That is an incredible thing, to feel the pleasure of God. I hope all of you have felt it in big and small ways and you are continuing to feel it because that's an amazing thing. I was experiencing God's validation in real time. In two minutes, the validation that I got from God broke down the chains of all the things, all my negativity, all my feelings of injustice, all my feelings of being wronged, all the anger was replaced in two minutes knowing that God had validated me. And you know what? If verse 5 was about God validating me, I will tell you there's something even more exciting coming. The moment you are able to embrace God's validation, the atmosphere changes. The atmosphere changes. Look what happens in verse 6. He says, and this is Isaiah. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may have salvation to the ends of the earth. It is too small a thing. My gosh, Isaiah is positioned as a prophet to move 
the entire nation of, of God, right? In that time. And that's like, you, I can't imagine a bigger weight of responsibility. But God is now imposing his, his big vision onto Isaiah. And he's saying, look, as big as you thought that was, as important as you thought, that's your world. That's the world you've known up until this point is about trying to move my people by being obedient to what I'm giving you. But guess what? That is too small a thing. I mean, imagine that. That is too small a thing. He is shepherding all of God's people, and yet that's too small a thing. Wow. You know, I went to sleep Monday as I went to sleep. So I got the disappointing call on Sunday, got God's validation Sunday evening. And Monday, when I went to bed, um, I woke up with those words. It is too small a thing for me to limit you, Sanjeev, to what Kaiser has to offer. Right? You know, I, I, I got up. I was in the same room. I, I, I co-sleep with my kids. They're, they still want to sleep with you at this age. And, and I, I looked, I got up, I looked around, and, and, and that dream kept recurring. It is too small a thing. And as I stayed up and I prayed into the night, I could just sense God saying, look, you have defined greatness for whatever reason in your life uh, in the confines of the job that, that your current employer has given you. And you have measured yourself as having greater worth or less worth based on the impact you can have within the confines of this organization. But guess what? The stage I'm calling to you, the borders I'm creating for you have nothing to do with these walls. It is too small a thing. I'm thinking to myself, look, being able to mobilize 9,000 doctors to affect 4 to 5 million people is a pretty big deal. But the God of the universe is speaking to me in the middle of the night saying it is too small a thing. It is too small a thing. Like, this is a God we worship. It is too small a thing. You know, and, and I want to share with you, um, I read an incredible quote about, if you're willing to just de- go with God's validation, you'll just be freed up to embrace what God has for you. Andy Stanley, um, the son of Charles Stanley, pastor in, in Atlanta, Georgia, he said this, and I love this quote of his that I just saw this week. It says, your glory is too small a thing to live for. Your glory is too small a thing to live for. So think about this. Just for a second, think of everything your 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 eye can see, your mind can conceive about what greatness could look like in your life and all the glory that may potentially bring upon you. Your name will be talked about forever uh, for multiple generations. And yet your glory, the maximal version of, of, of your glory, is too small a thing to live for. You know, God wants to exchange 
our visions with his all-encompassing vision for you. It's a great exchange that happens. Even in our Christian walks, we can approach a certain point in our life where we think this, Lord, is the best way that I am going to have impact within the kingdom. This is the best way I'm going to, I'm to, I'm going to labor for you. And God comes right back at you and says, no, that is too small a thing. It is too small a thing. And so for many of you sitting in this room today, as you're wondering about your season and wondering why haven't I gotten promise and fruition in this season, I want to submit to you that the Lord wants to actually ask and, and impart this to you, that what you are asking for is way too small. Not that it's not important or precious, but in, in the eyes of eternity, it is actually way too small. You want that job and you want that promotion because you think these are the people that define you and God says no. The ideas and thoughts that I've given you actually far exceed this nine to five job of yours. He's looking at you who are single, who are waiting for that spouse and who think that marriage will deliver great things and marriage is a wonderful thing. I'm in that season now. But he's saying just asking for the idea of being married is too small a thing. Watch what I do when I bring people into your life that will cause you to have worldwide impact. It is too small a thing if you are just looking to get honor from your parents or your peers or your children because you being faithful to me will open up doors that will eventually bring them along. But it is too small a thing for you to just ask for these things. These are painful areas. These are very difficult areas. And I don't mean to minimize any of it. You want that child. You've been trying, but God is saying, just having a child is too small a thing if my vision for you has to do with making you a, a mother and a father to many. How does that happen? That's God is saying, let me just draw you into eternal plans. Let me paint your life with my brush. Let me pull you into the grandeur of my eternal plans for you. Because what you're asking for is too small a thing. Let me take the best of what you got and let me breathe back into you my vision for your life that moves with respect to eternity. You know, a lot of my patients, they come to me and and one of the things I do with them now that I've known them for so long is with each one of my patients, at some point in their journey with me, I will say to them, here's my dream for you. They're, they're kind of taken aback when their primary care doctor says that. I tell them, here's my dream scenario for you. And the first thing they say is, Doc, I've never had my physician ever tell me they have a dream for me, right? But I tell them, look, this is my dream scenario for you. I have calculated with the best of my ability all the diseases that you have. And here's how we get you to the most excellent version of yourself. And so sometimes they will say, Doc, I my goal 
is to, to lose 10 pounds. And I will say, no, my dream for you is that you lose 50. My goal is to get off of one of my diabetes medications um, or get off insulin. And I will tell them, how about dreaming a way where you get off of all of your diabetes medications and antihypertensive pills? Some will say, you know, my goal is to cut down from smoking X, Y, and Z, not 10 of them, but five of them. And my dream for you is how about we get that down to zero, right? And so when you start to impart your dream to your patients, their eyes just light up because they entrust their lives to you in a very, very, very special, sacred way. And so I believe that is what God is asking from each one of us, is that would you, would you be willing to give me your vision and, and exchange it with mine? And, and if verse 5 was about validation and verse 6 is about vision, I wanted to submit to you that verse 7 is about victory. Read with me, if you will, Isaiah 49, 7. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers. Check this out. Kings will see you and rise up. Princesses will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel has chosen you. This is what God says to Isaiah, that you will command the respect of kings and princesses in time to come. What a radical thought. Validation first, vision second, ultimate victory to come. I want to share with you how my story ends. So on Sunday night, validation came. On Monday night, the vision came. On Tuesday, I get a call within 48 hours after this disappointing news. I get a call from this building in Pasadena, our mothership, from another group. And they say, we have heard, we have heard it said about you people at Baldwin Park that you guys are doing some cutting edge stuff with leadership development and we want to highlight it because nobody else is doing it in the region. Can you send your program for us to highlight for all to see? That is Tuesday. I'm thinking to myself, where were you guys when the interview process went? And then we come to Wednesday. One day later, I get a call from another section of our mothership, and they say, Hey, they, they call me Dr. Nanda for short. They said, Nanda, we want you to be the keynote speaker this year on December 3rd at the West End for a group of 300 physicians who are going, who are in their mid-career part of their, of their medical careers, right? They're at the 15-year mark. And we want you to be the CEO and you are going to follow we, we want you to be the keynote speaker, and you're going to follow what the CEO has to say. So on Tuesday, I get this call. Share with us your program. On Wednesday, I get a call. We want you to be the speaker to inspire 
300 physicians who are at their mid-career point. Now, I would think the person that's asked to deliver that speech, that keynote, actually should be the person getting the role, right? But that's not how God is moving in this realm. That is not how God is moving. So if on a Sunday evening he gives me validation, on Monday evening he gives me vision, and on Tuesday and Wednesday he starts giving me victories. Like, that is the God that we serve. I can't make this stuff up. I don't have a creative mind to keep up with the wonder-working God and the speed at which he moves. All in one week. You know, the book of Isaiah is quoted in the gospel about 21 times. It's mentioned by Apostle Paul in his letters like 25 times. Six times in First Peter, five times in the book of Acts, four times in Revelation, and it's even mentioned in Hebrews. It is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. Luke 4 tells us that when Jesus went himself, went into the temple in Nazareth, it was the scroll of Isaiah that he opened and he read. When the modern day, when the ancient uh, missional movement started, and Paul and Barnabas um, decide to go around on their first missions trip, and they're in Antioch, and then they go to Iconium and the Laotian cities of Lystra and Derbe, you know what starts that trip is, is they make a reference to Isaiah and to the words that came to Isaiah. And then they go boldly preaching the good news to the Gentiles. The impact that Isaiah had on, in church history is incredible. Not bad for a guy who 2,700 years ago, um, Ask the question, have I labored in vain? Church, as we close this morning, if you find yourself wondering um, in this current season, if all your labor has been in vain, would you just be open this morning to the truth that God in his godness, can breathe heaven's validation into you. He can bestow upon you the magnitude of his vision for your life. And he can start giving you some victories, some of which you will see in this lifetime, and some of which will only be talked about in the halls of eternity in heaven. If you're sitting here this morning and not knowing where to start, would you follow Isaiah's example and just declare this morning, Lord, you are my reward. Come what may, but Lord, you are my reward. My daughter, this week, she continues to remind me that our children can be incredible teachers if we let them.
she often comes up to me after work uh, with her cheeky smile, and she'll say, Daddy, um, do you have a reward for me? I'm like, huh? <laughs> do you have a reward for me, she'll ask me. And I will often ask her, what do you want? And she'll smile again, and she'll say, surprise me. Surprise me. And then she'll say, what are we going to do next? And then I'll give her a challenge. And then we will work through things that have been frustrating her that she's been trying for a while. And then we celebrate the little victories, like being able to catch a ball at six feet or being able to put a puzzle together or learning how to take her brother's diapers off. Um, these are the little celebrations that happen as a parent. But man, she she displays to me every day um, a little glimpse of what I think our father's heart is towards us. When we come to him and say, Lord, I'll take whatever. You are my reward. Surprise me, Lord. Surprise me with your reward. Because you are enough. You are enough. A lot of times I want to do stuff with my daughter and she'll just say, Daddy, just sit next to me. Just sit next to me. Like, as a father, you don't know how that makes me feel when my child just wants to sit next to me because I am enough. Imagine what our Heavenly Father feels towards us. I want to leave you this morning with the Apostle Paul's words that um, have been a game-changing strategy for me. They resonate with everything that Isaiah did. And all the saints throughout the generations have hung on to these words as he preached to the church in Colossus, in Colossians 3, 23 through 24. I leave you with this. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. My prayer for us this morning is that you will start with that place of saying, Lord, you are my reward, come what may, but you are enough. You are enough. And I'm trusting you that as I go into that place of saying that you are enough, that you will validate me in only the way that a living God can. And then you will breathe your vision back into me. And then your victories will come. Lord, I thank you for the precious men and women and children gathered here this morning. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will just continue to deposit your word deep, deep into hearts, minds, and souls this morning. 
Lord, we, we want to be your children who live with regard to eternity. We don't want to be weighed down by the sorrows of our seasons and not having things come to pass. But Lord, we want to give that to you. We want to give that to you. We want to give our desperation, our sadness, our disappointments to you, Lord, to invite you into this space, Lord. You know our faithfulness, Lord, and we believe that you can validate us in a way that only a living God can, and you will breathe vision and take away from us our lesser visions in exchange for your great grand one. And you will give us victory on your own terms. You are our great reward. In Jesus' name, amen.